Thank you, Alison, for reading for us, and Julie for leading us so thoughtfully so far this evening. I hope you're enjoying our Roman series. Um, I know the preachers are. Uh, we're really enjoying preaching Romans because it's so easy, um, because there's nothing difficult in it, nothing complex, doesn't take much out of you in the study. You just read it and get up and, and shoot because it's, it's all so straightforward. I was chatting to a friend uh, recently, another minister, and I was telling him that we were trying to preach Romans. And, and he said a couple of things which really encouraged me, actually. Um, he told me of some of the greats who had struggled. So apparently one day somebody came to see Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of the, the great preachers in the history of English evangelicalism. Uh, and this guy turned up this day and he said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, it's time you preached Romans. And to which the doctor replied, my dear man, once I know what Romans is about, I will have a go. Um, John Piper, apparently uh, another a great preacher and writer of our time, talks of how he went to Romans often, had a look, and walked away. He went back again, had another look, and walked away before he finally got round to, to preaching Romans. I'm in the 11th year of my ministry, and I've decided that it's time I stopped being a chicken and had a go at Romans. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed not, not any sense of getting a handle on it all or even sharing it very well with you, but just enjoyed taking time to think of the, the gospel, uh, how it is that, that God has worked in this world to reconcile us to him and thinking through the implications of that. I hope uh, that at least sometimes when you go home, uh, some of that uh, enthusiasm and joy is in your heart too. Let me pray for us all before we start because um, there's some stuff here that's pretty tricky to understand. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we know that only when you, by your Spirit, open blind eyes will we ever see anything worth seeing. It was only as you opened our eyes that we saw the beauty of Jesus for the first time and understood our need of him. Lord, it'll only be if you come now and open our eyes further that we're going to see new things and grow in you. Lord, that's our desire, that you would draw us deeper into Jesus. Show us this freedom that we've been thinking about. Not, not so that we have brighter minds, but so that we have enlarged hearts and more beautiful lives for you in this world. Amen. Please have that passage open before you. If you don't, you'll just flounder. Um, you won't enjoy the next 25 minutes or half hour at all. But if you have it open, you, you might be able to, to stick with me here. Last week in the second half of Romans 6, 
I suggested that the passage there give us a a good opportunity to explore one of the commandments that we've been looking at in our morning services, namely the second commandment uh, that we should not make for ourselves idols. This this evening, as we come to the the first half of chapter 7, I want to suggest that this passage is, is broader still in its application. It deals not only with one commandment, not even the Ten Commandments, but the whole of God's law. Because Romans 7 helps us to think about an absolutely crucial question. What's the place of the law in the life of a Christian disciple of Jesus Christ? Now that Jesus has come and he's invited us to a new way of life, where does the law fit in? That's a good question, and it's the one we'll try to answer this evening. If we want to try and understand what Paul is saying in Romans 7 about the law, probably best to take a moment to, to notice what he said about the law so far in Romans. Mostly what he says isn't very positive. So let's quickly, uh, and flick with me here to see these verses, uh, literally one minute of this uh, to build up a bit of a picture. Romans 3.20 Paul says, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Okay, that's important. A first building block. He tells us that through the law we became conscious of sin. And in verse 19, he's told us that the law condemns us so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Those just aren't very positive things to be saying about the law. We read on in chapter 4 and we learn in verse 15 that the law defines transgression. Chapter 4 verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. What does Paul mean? Well, he's making a point that the law takes what seems like just a, a personal thing, a personal sin if you like, and makes it into a legal offense. Simply by there being a law Our sin then infringes that law and causes a legal offense. Also in verse 15, he tells us that the law brings wrath. And chapter 5, verse 20, look with me. He goes as far as to say that the law was added so that the trespass might increase. So when Paul begins to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus... He talks in chapter 3, verse 21, about a righteousness from God apart from the law. So this thing that God is doing is going to happen apart from the law. Sinners are justified by God, not through obeying the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So this is interesting. It seems like Paul, when he preaches the gospel, when he points us to Jesus, he seems to be saying that everything that the gospel offers us, the the promise of the gospel, the grace, the, the faith that we are to exercise, all of it's incompatible with law. So this is this is what brings us to this question this evening. What's the place of the law in the life of a Christian? There's a time in the past, I think, when people were very given to theological questions. They loved nothing more than debating theology and 
That's what you did in your Sunday dinner table and into the afternoon. I'm not sure we're quite wired that way anymore. So just before I spend 15 minutes talking about something here that you think isn't important, let me quickly suggest to you that this is an important question, the role of the law in the life of the Christian. It really matters. Because if we don't get it right, there are different ways in which we can get it wrong. John Stott talks about three different approaches we will have in our minds to the law. See if you can work out where you stand on this. He says, first, there are the legalists. They imagine that their relationship to God depends on their obedience to the law. So they're hoping that the law will, first of all, make them right with God. And secondly, obeying the law is going to make them more like Jesus. These people end up usually feeling crushed by the law because none of us can keep it. And it doesn't, in the end, save us. That's maybe one extreme, we could say. On the other extreme, there are the antinomians, or or people who are anti-law. And they teach that actually the law has no place in the life of a Christian. And they quote Bible verses, Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Romans 6, verse 14, you're not under law, but under grace. And they speak as if God's moral code just didn't exist anymore. As if, for example, the Ten Commandments that we've been thinking about in our morning services, as if somebody had just deleted those from Scripture, as, as if they no longer were there or mattered. There's a third way. And as we'll see this evening, this is the only biblical way. Stott calls it law-fulfilling freedom. People who are free and law-fulfilling, they celebrate on the one hand the truth that the law doesn't make us right with God, nor does it make us more like Jesus. But they love the law, nevertheless. Because the law tells us what pleases God. They recognize that they have no power to fulfill the law, but that they'll always rely on the Holy Spirit to, to help them to keep God's law. In Romans 7, we're going to spend some time basically with that third position. So let's, let's get stuck in to the text. Very quickly, to place Romans 7, the first half of it, in its immediate context, I think in chapter 6 and 7, Paul's using three different metaphors to talk about the transformation of our life before Christ into Christ. In the first half of chapter 6, his metaphor is death and resurrection. He says, we've died with Christ and we've risen to a new life. Last week, we looked at metaphor number two. He says, we've changed employer. We were slaves to sin. Now, we're slaves to righteousness. And this evening, the the metaphor in the the early verses of chapter 7 is different. To illustrate the change in a Christian's life, he talks about a a remarriage. A remarriage that happens after a death. So let's look at these opening verses. He begins by establishing a basic legal principle. Do you not know, brothers, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? Folks, this is relatively simple, I think. It's, if, if there's a legal contract between two people and one of them dies, then the contract is voided. 
Whenever death intervenes, that relationship that was established and protected by the law is terminated. That's Paul's point. Paul then moves on in verses 2 and 3 to to, to apply that general legal principle to a specific case, a, a marriage. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. When I read that, I broke out in a cold sweat because I thought, goodness, Claire, to get rid of me, all she has to do is like poison me, do that thing that there were, you know, a bit of, what is it, antifreeze in my next dinner tomorrow night, and, and she's free. So to, when, a, when a, a wedding, a, a partner in a marriage dies, the other is free from, from their obligations. When the husband dies, the woman's status actually changes. She's no longer a wife. Her, her legal status is that she's freed from the, the obligations and responsibilities she'd taken in her marriage. In verse 4, Paul begins to tell us why he's going, on, going to talk about all of this. He says, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. By the way, don't get too caught up in who's died and who's been set free because Paul, he does this sometimes. He introduces a metaphor and then doesn't be entirely consistent with how it works. He's establishing a basic point. Don't don't worry too much about the mechanics of it. Notice simply that one person has died and that that the law no longer has hold. We have died and the law no longer has hold over us. Paul says that we've died to the law through the body of Christ. We've seen this before with Paul. In chapter 6, verse 2, he explains there, he uses the same image that we've died with Christ. In that case, he says that we've died to sin, okay? Notice this with me, please. In the early verses of chapter 6, he's saying you've died to sin, so don't live under its power. That's, That's basically what he's saying there. Here in chapter 7, he's talking again about dying with Christ, but it's, it's a different outcome that he's driving towards. He says that we have died to the law this time. And then he goes on to explain two implications of our dying to the law, that we might belong to another and in order that we might bear fruit to God. I want to take a moment with you here to think about those two implications of, of being dead to the law. First of all, we died to the law so that we might belong to another. Folks, that's important because ultimately the big question in life isn't who you are. We, we imagine that that's the big question. The big question in life is whose we are. Let me explain. We don't like to think of ourselves as belonging to anyone. We thought about this last week. We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves. We're free to do what we want any old time. But see that feeling of freedom that we have or or sometimes have? It's like the freedom a, a jellyfish experiences when it's moved around in the ocean's currents. In in its immediate context, it feels like it has freedom to come and to go, but all the while it could be taken thousands of miles in this direction or in that by forces beyond it. We're not 
free. The Bible doesn't recognize any human self-determination. We saw this last week. Paul said in chapter 6, You are slaves of the one whom you obey. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Do we get this? We're slaves either of sin or of God. It's one or the other. I love the way John Piper puts this. He says, most of the time we're free to do what we want. So he admits that there is that sense of freedom that we have to to make choices and do what we want. Most of the time we're free to do what we want, but we are not free to want what we ought. We're not free to want what we ought. Isn't that so true? It's a reality that prompted Dallas Willard to say something at a conference that really stuck with me. I loved it. He said that we need our wanters fixed. That's what's wrong with us. It's our wanters that have gone wrong. We can no longer want and desire the right things. If our wanters are going to be fixed, then God's going to have to do something about it. He's going to have to change our hearts. And in chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Folks, it's a thing of the heart that needs to change. We need to be won over in love And Jesus, Jesus draws us to him in love because of all that he's done for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. The price that Jesus paid to win my freedom and yours was his blood, his life. Folks, we're free now in Christ. We really are free. And, but, but we need to understand this. We're not free to be autonomous. We're free to want what is good. Jesus' death means the death of our old self and the birth of a whole new way of life. Instead of living under sin's rule, we live in relationship with Jesus. Folks, Jesus died so that I could be and you could be free from the law to belong to him. I wonder, do we get this? Being a Christian is not about signing up to a moral code. Following Jesus isn't a burden. It really isn't. And while we're still thinking of it that way, we're, we're missing something of the gospel Paul's describing here. Following Jesus is a joy. It's the joy of a wife pleasing her husband or of a husband pleasing his wife. Remember, 
always remember, we are not our own. We've been set free from the law to belong to another, to Jesus, to the love of our lives. So the first outcome of dying to the law is that we belong to Christ. The second related outcome is that we, we will bear fruit. This is important. How can we please God if we're dead to the law and, and the law is no longer our master? If we can't put ticks beside a law on the page and say, yes, Lord, I've obeyed those, how then do we please him? The, the law is good. That's what we've been saying on Sunday mornings, uh, these Ten Commandments. It's, it's what Paul's going to say in the closing verses of our passage. So how do we please God if we don't obey the law? Well, the biblical answer is that instead of obeying a law which demands us of us and condemns, we now obey Christ who, who demands but gives Under the law, think about it for a moment. How is it that the law brings about good? It does it by coercion. From the outside of us, the the tablets of stone or the written law code, they stand before us and they coerce acts of, of obedience out of us. But in Jesus, a goodness wells up inside us. We desire to love him and to please him. He's warming our hearts. He fills us with new godly passions. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings this new obedience out. A living person, Jesus, replaces a legal list. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see now where the Bible talks of a new way of obedience as, as bearing fruit rather than keeping law. We have died to law keeping. That, that's over. So that we might live by bearing fruit. Folks, think for a second about that difference. That, that law keeping and bearing fruit. Keeping law is really hard work. I, I don't know about you. I, I often have to say to my kids when they're They've been told what they should do and they struggle to do it. And they, you can see a wee look in their face that just says, it's so hard to be good. And there's a big part of me that just identifies with them right from the bottom of my soles and my feet to the top of my head. I don't find it easy to be good. I never have. And I don't know if I ever will. If that's what it means to be good. If it means to to hear the commands I was given or to look at the list of the laws and to try my hardest to keep them. Bearing fruit is the most natural thing in the world. There's no striving, no straining. Fruit naturally grows in trees. If the tree's good, the fruit will be good. If we're in Christ and his spirit's alive in us, then we'll naturally and easily begin to do the things that please God. The things that the law would coerce out of us just naturally 
come to us like fruit on a tree or a fetus in a womb. We have died to law so that we might bear fruit. Just in case you're panicking, I'm going to deal with the last verses very much more quickly than the first. We're almost done. In verses 5 and 6, Paul does something similar to what he did in our passage last week. He does a before and after snapshot. In chapter 6, verses 20 to 22, he compares life when sin is your boss to life when, when we're in Christ. Now, in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, he compares life when we're under law and heading for death with life now when we've been released and we live by the power of God's Spirit. Life couldn't be more different. And as we go further in Romans, this is the direction we're headed. Life not as a slave to sin. Life not obligated to the law, but life in the Spirit. That's where we're going in the weeks ahead. Before I finish this evening, I'd like to spend just one or two moments in in verses 7 to 12. Because Paul asks here a simple question. Is the law bad? After all I've said, Paul asks, is the law bad? If it doesn't bring us to Jesus, if if it doesn't make us right with God, if it doesn't make us more like Jesus, is the law bad? And in characteristic fashion, as soon as he asks a question, he shouts, certainly not. There's no way Paul thinks the law is bad. So very quickly, he he explains where he's coming from. He sticks up for the law from his own experience. I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Paul chooses the most inward of the Ten Commandments, the best one to sneakily get away with because nobody else knows. He chooses it and he says, you know, It was the law that helped me to recognize that coveting was a sin. If I hadn't read it in the law, I wouldn't have seen that. So he says, there's a good thing about the law. It helps me to know when I'm sinning. And then in a few short verses that follow, he gives us a wonderful psychology of sin. He says, there's nothing wrong with sin in itself. But, verse 8, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Look at verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was actually intended to bring life actually brought death. Do you know what Paul is talking about here? I think you do when you stop for a moment to dwell on it. He's talking about the tendency that we have to approach a door that says private And because it says private, to want to look inside. If the door didn't say private, we'd walk past it. If the law wasn't there, some of that dynamic to want to disobey it wouldn't be there. Paul says that the law provides like a a foothold that our own sinfulness jumps on and uses as a springboard to wreak havoc in our lives. The problem is not with the law. The problem's with our sin. 
So says Paul, look at verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandments holy, righteous, and good. The law is not bad, folks. It's our sinfulness that that leads us astray and uses the law for its own purposes. We began this evening by asking, what's the place of the law in the life of the Christian disciple now that Christ's come and invited us into a new way of life? I wonder, are you beginning to get the picture? I want to leave you with an image. Imagine a young couple uh, going on a marriage preparation class. I was meeting with a young couple just this week, so it's all fresh in my memory. I don't marry, marry a couple unless they agree to go on a marriage preparation. So here they are, and they go on their marriage preparation. And one of the sessions in their course is called Making Your Other Half Happy. And one of the tasks they're given to do, both of them, the, the young man and the young woman, is there to write a list of the things that they would want the others to do for them in their marriage. So they go off, they spend their 10, 15 minutes, and they write their list. The young woman on her list, among other things, says, visit my parents with me, help with the housework, and take me out to dinner once in a while. Those are the things she writes on her list. She gives it to her fiancé, and he's, he's really glad to see the list. Now he knows where he stands. He knows that if he does these things, then he's a good husband. He can expect his wife to be pleased with him. Job done. So in the years after their marriage, he tries with every ounce of strength and resolve that he has to do the things that he saw on that list. That, after all, is how this marriage works. If he does what his wife asks, she accepts him and loves him in return. What if the husband learned one day, in conversation with one of his wife's friends, that she loved him even when he didn't stack up. When he missed a trip to the parents, when when he was working late and did less work around the house than he had hoped to, even when there'd been a long gap between those dinners that they go out on. What's he going to think to himself in that moment when he realizes that she loves him anyway? Is he going to say to himself, great, I didn't realize I could get away with so little. I didn't realize that she would still love me anyway. This is brilliant. Quid's in. He might respond like that. And that would be an indicator of the quality of his love for his wife or, or of no love at all. Isn't it just possible that in that moment, in that conversation with his wife's friend, when he discovers that he's loved, whether he gets it right or not, isn't it just possible that in that moment he'd be overwhelmed by grace?
wouldn't it make him want to please her all the more? Wouldn't he forget about doing the minimum that he can get away with that qualifies him? And wouldn't he start thinking more about the things that he could do that aren't on his wife's list, more things that his wife loves that he's come to learn about her, things that would bring her joy? What role would the the old list now play in his life? That list would still exist, but it would have an entirely different purpose. It wouldn't be a tick list that he'd use to see if he's meeting the mark. It would be the start of a wonderful venture in creativity. He'd be thinking to himself, I know she loves these things. I wonder would she like this? I wonder if I did this for her. And what about that? I think she'd like that. It would become this list, a foundation for a life of joyful experimentation in finding new ways to please his wife and bring her joy. Friends, we're looking for the role of the law in the life of a Christian. I think it's something like that. It's a place where God tells us some things that please him. It's a place from which we move on to learn more and more. Not not to be law keepers, but to bear fruit. Not to be people under obligation, but people in relationship be lovers. Let us pray.